Welcome to K-Drama School. I'm your host, Grace Jung, and class is now in session. mostly dedicated to this podcast as you all know it's almost the one year anniversary next week will be the one year anniversary episode so look forward to that and what can i say other than thank you for being part of this journey i was very very nervous when i set out to do this podcast it was a deeply personal challenge for myself and i overcame against all odds And those odds were nothing but myself and self-doubt and fear and self-questioning and all that shit. But what have we learned? What have I learned? I learned that that's just how I go. That's just how I go about doing things. Whenever I create anything new, it just comes with all that self-doubt and self-questioning. Not always, you know, I mean... Yeah, no, actually always. I always have that. And I always somehow persevere and I overcome. And that's the only way to overcome your fears. It's just to do it, just to do the actual thing that is freaking you the fuck out. Because once you start doing it, you're just in it. And there's nothing to be afraid of because you're just part of that thing. You're in the process of being the thing that you were afraid of becoming, but you're in the in the fucking thing you're just doing it you are so what is there to be afraid of nothing nothing time and time again that's always the answer this past year i completed my doctoral dissertation as you all know i had four job interviews i got on unemployment and food stamps i started writing my second novel that's a thing. I was going to write the K-Drama School book, but I stopped. And it is now going to be on my website, kdramaschool.com. I'm going to call it the K-Drama Notebook. And the introduction is already up there. So you guys can access that right now for free. So go to kdramaschool.com or go to kdramaschool.com slash notebook. I think that's the, I think that's the address. If not, just go to kdramaschool.com, look for K-Drama School Notebook, and click on it, and you're going to see my introduction there. How lucky are you? You're very lucky. (laughs) But thank you for listening. Thank you for reading. Thank you for writing to me. Thank you for supporting. If you have not subscribed to the YouTube channel, please subscribe. I still don't have 100 subscribers on that, and um, honestly, it's making me feel like kind of a loser. But thank you for following me on social media. The social medias are doing somewhat better than the YouTube subscription. So that is a plus. And I am really uh, happy to be doing this with all of you guys. Uh, So thank you. Today's drama is called The King's Affection, Yeonmo. It is a KBS drama, which is based on a webtoon written and illustrated by Yi Soyoung. And it stars... Park Eun-bin and Ro-un. Park Eun-bin, you've all seen in Hello, My Twenties. 
the JTBC drama, which has two seasons, and she played the very happy, peppy, friendly Song Ji-won, right? I think she was like a journalist major or something on that show. And uh, she's on both seasons. Um, and I, I loved Park Eun-bin on that drama. I think she was my favorite character. I just loved her energy. I loved her, her style, her wit, her movements, her gestures. She's remarkable. Uh, Park Eun-bin has a very long career that dates back to the late 1990s. She started out as a child actress and her debut TV role was back in 1998 on an SBS drama that stars Lee Byung-hun, Shim Eun-ha, and Choi Min-soo. It's called White Nights 3.98 or Baekya, which is about Korean Air Force pilots. And Park Eun-bin was just six years old on that show. She played one of the characters' daughter. She was in quite a few period pieces like Empress Myeongsong, Age of Warriors, Queen's Handuk, and The Iron Empress. She was also on that show Hajun, which was immensely popular, came out in 2013. Park Eun-bin was in some romantic Korean dramas I saw when I was growing up back in the day, like Guardian Angel, My Love Pachi, and Glass Slippers. So she was always like the, the young child actor on all these shows. She has a very robust career in film and television, mostly TV. And she played the lead in Do You Like Brahms, the K-drama that came out in the year 2020, opposite Kim Min-jae. Ro-un plays a role that is really fascinating. He plays the Lady King's love interest on this drama. And if you're a K-pop fan, you absolutely know who Rowan is. He's the lead vocalist of SF9. And I was really impressed with Rowan's acting chops on The King's Affection because he really brought it. He brings charisma. He brings intensity. He brings depth. You know, he brings a lot to such a complex character, such a devoted character to The King. This show started out a bit slow for me, and it took me a few weeks to catch up and then binge the rest. But this trope of gender crossing or gender play in Korean dramas is not at all a new thing, as we all know, for listeners of this podcast. We all know that this is a gimmick. It's a trope. And women dressing up to pass as men in historical Korean dramas is also very common. In fact, our beloved Son Yejin, who we all know from Crash Landing on You and Something in the Rain, she played a woman passing for a man in a historical drama called Great Ambition that aired back in 2002 with Yeo Won, Jang Hyuk, and Han Jae-seok. And we've seen gender crossing, of course, in the very famous, very beloved program Coffee Prince, right, with Kong Yu. But what makes Tami on The King's Affection so unique is her character's transgender queerness, which I'll explain here. In the book Camp TV, which is written by Quinlan Miller, this term transgender queer is a theory. It's a concept that Miller defines as, I quote, as a multiple implicitous switch point between trans and queer. So I think trans queerness is applicable in Tami's case because Tami doesn't identify as a trans man, but she does embody a man and performs male duties as a king. And she attracts a man with her manhood. 
And she attracts a woman with her manhood and womanhood. See? So, so Tami's queerness as a king has a multiplicitous function across genders. And when Tami marries the queen and later reveals her true identity as a woman, the queen continues to retain her love and affection and devotion for Tami despite Tami being a woman. All this is to say that The King's Affection is a show that is a very fertile ground for reading through a queer theory lens. The King's Affection is also an incisive critique of patriarchal greed and power and, and the ends that a patriarchal head will go in order to retain said power, going so far as killing his own grandchildren. The King's Affection is a historical fiction. It's not based on any real king in the Chosen Dynasty or whichever dynasty this was. I believe it's a Chosen Dynasty, though. But the queer relationships in ancient Korea are very well documented in actual history. You can read about some of that in my article on Jump Cut. I discuss some of these queer relations that took place in the palace way back in the day, particularly between the king and his protectors, his military, his, his, his defense, basically. As with any society at any time, though, queerness was always present, even if it was hidden away or repressed. Queerness persisted and existed no matter what. I think this show honors that queer history in some way, because although it doesn't end with a, a queer relationship, you know, it does end with this heteronormative ending. It does kind of gesture that this was this potentiality back in the day, that this most likely would have happened in some circumstances, right? So it's sort of this uh, imagined projection onto past history with a queer vision. Even still, I liked Roon's character uh, because he displayed physical and emotional affection for Tami, even when he didn't know that Tami was a woman. And I think these moments can be read as positive moments for queer Korean TV history. Today's guest is Liam McEnany. He's a veteran stand-up comic from New York. He now lives in LA and he is such a cinephile. He is now a filmmaker and we go real deep into movies on this podcast. All kinds of movies from all around the world, from all different eras, from all different auteurs. We go deep into literature. We go deep into music. We talk about history and politics and culture and all kinds of fun and brainy stuff. It's a blast. It's a long one. Let's talk to Liam McEnany. Actually, uh, I'm extremely tired. I got five hours sleep last night. So uh, um... I had to finish editing a project for school that was two months overdue. So Oh, fuck. Yeah, it's entirely my fault. Oh, thank yeah. you. you. I'm actually, it. yeah, I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. So uh, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's an excellent feeling, man, to finish something and then be happy with the product. That's like, what more can you ask for? Well, I'm pretty great, so <laughs> I'm used yeah. to that feeling. Everything yeah. I do is wonderful, and I'm very proud of everything I've ever done. So, uh, Wow, you're like a really um, great father to yourself. <laughs> you know, you're like the father that every boy deserves, you know, but to and, yourself. And every young woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And every young non-gender binary. Uh, okay. Sure. <laughs> well, in that case, you have to talk about how uh, there's gender-neutral parenting. 
Oh. And non-traditional parenting. Oh, yeah. This is going to be a a great podcast. I can feel it. (laughs) It's going to be about parenting. Let's just go through every variation, throuples, and... All of it. Divorced parents who are still partners to be... Yeah, divorced parents. parents who get divorced, and then they both transition into the opposite gender, and then they get back together. Like Has that, that happened? I don't know, but I feel like... I feel, I'm sure it has happened somewhere in the universe, and I'm sure This American Life wants to cover that story. Like, I'm pretty sure... And Grace, I, I feel like I'm listening to your Sundance Lab pitch right now. Ah, that's a pretty good lap pitch, huh? <clears throat> yeah, it's actually they would take that in a heartbeat. I think so too. I think it'll do better than the farewell ever did. Yeah. What's the farewell? It's that uh, movie that actually I think it was a uh, pitched at Sundance Labworks. Um, what's her face? Shit. Her story was in uh, NPR's This American Life, and then that story became a film, and that uh-huh. film stars Aquafina. Basically, it's about uh, a granddaughter who has a grandmother who has terminal ca- cancer, but that grandmother doesn't speak any English. So when she goes into the doctor's office, like the children, so this granddaughter's parents they and uncles, they hear the doctor saying, yeah, this woman's going to die. But instead of telling the grandmother that she's going to die of terminal cancer, they just don't tell her and they just keep living life like as it is. And guess what? She never dies. Like she sticks around. <laughs> Wow, that movie sounds like a real fucking downer for most of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I never watched it. I only listened to the, the NPR thing just because oh. it was on. And then I was like, I already know the story. Uh, it just sounds really traumatic. I don't think I could handle it right now. I just saw a trailer. Uh, speaking of movies that Aquafina was almost in, but then she couldn't do it. Uh-huh. But Michelle Yeoh's in a new movie uh-huh. with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Whoa. And uh, fucking, it's kind of an all-star cast. It's uh, it's about so Michelle Yeoh is like an ordinary woman uh-huh. who reaches, I guess, a, a breaking point, uh-huh. and then suddenly she slips into all these different multiple universes. Oh my god! And it's it looks, dude. You got to find the trailers from A twenty four. Okay. And it's directed by this team called the Daniels, because there's two dudes named Dan. Oh my god, this already sounds like, wow. Yeah, it's, uh, I just, I, like I said, I just watched the trailer, it looks great. Sounds like a, like a millennial Gen Z fever dream, you know, it's like... And the this... dude who played Short Round is in it. Short Round? From Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Oh shit, wow. I didn't okay. know that guy was still acting. <laughs> he plays Michelle Yeoh's husband. I mean, yeah, you know, we're we're here, aren't we here to we're in it to win it, aren't we? And that that guy is in it to win it. Okay? He is clinging on. All right? Well, that's the thing about the business, right? It's are we recording? Is this Mhm. Yeah. Okay. So It's happening. Uh I saw I remember once the first time I visited LA, I went to Whole Foods, the oh. one on La Brea and Santa Monica, I think it is. Okay. Wow. The and uh and I saw a woman from a movie that uh, that I used to like when I was younger yeah. work in the register. Whoa. And I was like, holy shit. She was like the lead, the female lead in that movie. What I mean, movie she was, is this? 
Uh, well, I don't, I don't know if I want to. Who cares? Say it. Oh, uh, nobody's gonna listen to this. Uh, Tommy Boy. <laughs> so she played like, uh, she played like the the like, uh, what's his name's love interest in that movie. Wow, and she's a cashier at Whole Foods. She was. I mean, but that's the thing, right? Like, uh, what's his name? Who played Elvin on the Cosby Show? Was a was a was working at um, Trader Joe's in Newark, and it blew up all over the internet because people were just like, "Wow, look yeah. at this!" He used to be famous. Now look at him now. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about acting is that you just don't know. You just never fucking know. Right. It's like, yeah, okay, you could be in a hit movie, you could be in a hit TV show, but who's to say that that's forever? It's never forever. It's very temporal. Yeah, I mean, that's why all this shit pays so well, right? Because, like, you could have a writing job and make $75,000 for six months' work, Mm -hmm. but then you're out of work for 18 months and you have to live off that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's really, it's not all glitz and glamour. It's a lot of, like waiting around hoping you know reading tarot cards every fucking day you know writing manifestations in the <laughs> <book>. <laughs> are you are making you... the movie that you want to see i did i i did this short film i'll send you a link when we're done it's four yeah. it's four and a half minutes it's three minutes plus two minutes of credits um let's see it i'm interested yeah. but it's like just like a like a goofy action thing Okay. Uh, and I was just like, you know, I love action comedies. I fucking like think what? that. Oh, the Lethal like. Weapon movies. Uh, oh. Yeah. You know, um, I just watched actually. Uh, what did I watch? I just got a. Fuck! I'm watching a lot of stuff right now. Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz sounds like a goofy action movie. Hot Fuzz is great. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's I I like Edgar Wright a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to see. I was at a festival ten years ago, and I went to see um, Attack the Block just because Edgar Wright was had was an executive producer, and he was going to be there to give a talk back at the oh, wow. at the draft You're a house. Diehard fan. Not a diehard fan, but I was like, what a great opportunity to fucking maybe ask him a question. I didn't get to. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but Attack the Block. Which I was like. Uh, South by Southwest. Oh, yeah. Very, very nice. Yeah. And then I also saw a movie called Hobo with a Shotgun. Oh, which, nice title. Yeah. <laughs> which was... Uh, it was like uh, this guy had won the Grindhouse trailer contest. Uh-huh. Do you remember when uh, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez did Grindhouse? No, but... All right, so Ro- Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez did uh, did a joint project called Grindhouse. Okay. And they basically both made two low budget action films. And they released it together and then they got friends like Eli Roth to make fake trailers for for other like uh, Grindhouse type movies. Okay. And they had they had a contest where where fans could make a trailer and the winning trailer uh, was put into the movie. Ah. Okay. Yes. 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 And so this dude made a trailer called Hobo with a Shotgun and it got into the Grindhouse movie and that got him funding to make the whole film. Um, Is this guy he... a comic? I don't know. I've never heard of him since then. <laughs> okay. Like He just I'm seems to have going. disappeared. No, no, it's all right. I mean, this is pretty yeah, much the yeah. end of the story. So I went to see this. 
So it's like Rutger Hauer plays a hobo who wanders uh-huh. around shooting people. Uh-huh. Um, and it was fucking great because it was just this like dumb, low-budget Rutger Hauer movie uh-huh. uh, <laughs> playing at a wow. big, prestigious festival. Yeah, um, I love that. That's sort of what makes festivals fun, like film festivals really fun. Like, because you get to see things that you would never, ever be able to see anywhere else, like short films, like trailers. Right. You know, these are productions that full-on productions making any film whether it's three minutes or three hours it's a lot of fucking work it kicks your ass and being able to showcase them at a festival it's like marvelous for everybody yeah so but anyway so i like i like action movies lethal weapon hot fuzz Hmm. uh you know i i'm not a big marvel fan Mm-hmm. But I did like Shang Chi and the and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I watched that last week. Oh, I you, didn't see that yet. You should. You know what's interesting about action movies is, yeah, and this is this is a movie that gets it right. There's a lot of action movies that get this wrong. Is oh. that uh, um, fight scenes? Right. Yeah. They can be gratuitous and mindless and fun to watch. But in an action I, movie... I always skip past them. I'm just like, click, click, click. I skip past them. But in an action movie, like a good one where the director and the writer and the producers, like everybody knows what they're doing, uh-huh. right? It should... Um, a, a good fight scene will accomplish two of three things. One okay. is... Because they're like... They're kind of like... If you ever watch a Jackie Chan or a Bruce Lee movie or... Um, or a... God, what else? Um... Any martial the, arts films like Hong like, Kong films and shit like that? Yeah, but uh, but what's the one that Ang Lee did? Uh, House. Oh, Crouching Tiger. Crouching Tiger, right? So it's a really good movie. Yeah. It's a great movie. Speaking of Michelle Yeoh, uh, yeah. but uh, but the fight scenes should—they're like—they're like the songs in a musical, right? Yes. Where they're not just there; they have—they yeah. should have a purpose, mm-hmm. and they should Thank either. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like there's three things that three things that a fight scene can accomplish, and they should accomplish two of them. Uh, yeah. One of them is to reveal character. Uh-huh. The second is to advance story, and the third is to make you feel like everybody involved is in danger of getting hurt, right? Uh-huh. And so, like a lot of Marvel movies, don't accomplish any of that. Uh, especially the thing about like being about feeling like uh, you know the 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 characters are in danger because it's all just cartoons drawn on a computer. Have um, you seen that movie, The Raid? The Raid. What's that? Okay, just to, sorry to interrupt you, but very quickly, it's an no, 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 Indone- go ahead. It's an Indonesian action film, and uh-huh. it's basically like the the action and fight scenes are so well coordinated that people just watch this movie because of for that reason it's like it's like watching like martial arts movies from like hong kong and 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 shit like that but this is from indonesia like okay. it, it was such a it was like just like a very small b movie like art house kind of indie flavor but it was like a massive success and then uh there's a production company here in hollywood that made a sequel to that they made raid 2 redemption because like it was so fucking i heard of that one yeah hugely popular thing but yeah if you love action films maybe I'll... the raid maybe you could add that to your roster i made a note of it the other thing i've been watching lately is just 
uh, new wave films from the 60s, like Italian, uh, French, Czechoslovakian, like Truffaut, all these movies. Godard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like it's all these movies I'd never watched when I was younger. Um, like the cause... cinephile films, the classic cinephile films, the ones where the film geeks at NYU with their beanies <laughs> like to talk about, you know, smoking a cigarette outside on Broadway or whatever the fuck. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So funny. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really go to college. Um, so I had the opposite experience where, where I grew up, it was like people really looked down on those movies and like mm -hmm. really just like it was mm -hmm. a weird lower middle class snobbery whereas like the yeah. real movies are the ones that are entertaining that people love to watch that make right. a lot of money right and there's nothing wrong with that by the way i mean it's like neither yeah. one of those kinds of movies is terrible but I agree. but it's like I feel like I've been robbed a little bit because I started watching Agnes Varda movies and oh, she's fucking yeah. amazing. Oh, yeah. She's fucking next level. Yeah. Like, like, she makes it look effortless. She does these, like, mm -hmm. character studies that just, uh, that just kind of, like, defined a, a way a certain cinema was shot, I'm learning. You know? Mm hmm she has an eye she has a definite eye and she has a feel like she has an extra sensory feeler for that i think that's what makes her unique and stand out I mean, she's like a true artist yeah she she was like uh yeah. vagabond blew my mind mm. Mm. if you if if you have a listener and they don't know what vagabond is um it's uh it's this movie about just a young woman who uh, just wanders around the French countryside, not doing much of anything and refusing yeah. to do any work or anything like that. And like a lot Lebowski. of the, like the big Lebowski, except she dies in the end in a ditch. <laughs> of course. Right. Of course. Whereas Lebowski, like uh, the dude's life just literally never changes from beginning to end. Like exactly the same. Except he loses Donnie. Except he loses Donnie, but it doesn't affect him much ultimately. He still He's, goes and bowls, yeah. He still gets high and, and bowls and, and... And he abides. Yeah. And he talks to God and, you know, like... Uh... I really love The Big Lebowski. It's like... That's, you know, when people ask me, like, oh, you have a PhD in film and media studies, what's your favorite movie? I say The Big Lebowski. And they're like, what? Interesting. <laughs> like, they get thrown off. And I'm like, I'm like to me, that movie's poetry. <laughs> I agree it's a great movie, but what makes it, like, your favorite? Like, what puts it above all the other movies you like? I, I really can't explain it. It's like, um, when I was 19 years old, I was living, I was living in Inwood, like, tip-top of Manhattan, with uh -huh. a roommate. She was going to NYU at the time. Her boyfriend at the time was at NYU Tisch studying filmmaking. And he actually went on to become a sound recordist for uh, um, Chloe Zhao's film, the one that she won an Oscar for, Nomadland. A uh, Nomadland, um, yeah. Yeah, and then and this guy, this poor kid. What did you think away. of that? I love Nomadland. I think it's like such a beautiful and eloquent movie, mm -hmm. and she's 
she's working with non-actors, like people on the site who are speaking from their lived experience. So there's no mediated acting, mental, none of that. It's all right. just so pure. But A lot of like, those were people from the book that the movie was based on. Yes, yes, so yes. So she just cast them as themselves, which doesn't always yeah. work. It doesn't always work, but... And, you know, she's not the first filmmaker to do this. I mean, Fellini did this all the time. Fucking Sean Baker, he does it all the time. The guy who did Tangerine. Varda. He does it all the time. Yeah, th so I, that, I love that kind of realism. I mean, that kind mm -hmm. of cinematic realism where this documentary sort of element like just sort of folds into the narrative so beautifully. Like, I am so down with that. I love mm -hmm. that kind of filmmaking. Um, but uh, anyway, Agnes had her name. Oh, my God. My <laughs> synchronicity. My ex-roommate, her name was Agnes. Agnes oh, okay. had, she had um, <clears throat> an, uh, like another friend of hers uh, from Japan staying at like couch surfing. And this fucking guy, he's like super fucking rich. And he was couch surfing for like two months. This piece of shit, right? Mm -hmm. But he was buying a lot of movies. Like Blockbuster was still in business. So they would have the bins like where you would sell like $5 DVDs or $10 DVDs. And Agnes brought home The Big Lebowski. Mm -hmm. And she was just watching it with her friend. And I, and I just came home from school. And I, just, I was just kind of standing watching this. And I could not stop laughing. I was like shitting mm. my pants crying laughing nobody else was laughing nope i was like how are you not laughing i was dying and then agnes was like i'm i'm impressed that you find this movie so funny and i'm like i'm like how can you not find it funny it was just like this like soul match kind of moment right right and i'm like 19 and i was like can i do you mind if i rewatch this movie and she's like yeah go ahead i rewatched the big lebowski every single day for the next 30 days of that month uh -huh. and to this day, I still rewatch The Big Lebowski at least like twice a year, every single year. I just love this movie so much. I think it's comedically hilarious. I think it's cosmically hilarious. I think the way that they use the word fuck in that movie is like poetic. It's poetic mm -hmm. how well they use it. I think uh, Jeff Bridges is astounding in that movie. Yeah. I think Steve Buscemi and John Goodman they're astounding in this movie. Everybody was just so good. I don't know. For me, it's like a perfect film. It just, it matches my soul identity in some way. I think that's what it is. I, I can't explain it in any, any other way than that. That's interesting. You know, I had, I saw it when it came out in the theater. Um, and I, I mean, I was a big Coen Brothers fan by that point. Cause yeah. uh, like, I was shocked when I found out later that the Hudsucker proxy is unpopular. Because to me, that's just a great, great piece of filmmaking. I haven't even um, heard of that movie, honestly. You haven't heard of The Hudsucker Proxy? I'm no. not surprised. Nobody but me liked it. It starred Paul Newman. They, it was a collaboration with Sam what? Raimi, of all people. right? So and this is a Coen's film? This is a Coen Brothers movie? This is a Coen movie, He, uh, but Raimi like, wrote and produced it with them. Uh, oh, okay. So they didn't so, write it. Oh, they did. But oh, he, they did write it. Yeah, they did. They wrote and directed it. But like Sam Raimi co-wrote and co-produced it with them. Fascinating. Uh, so it's got Bruce Campbell in it, right? So like, uh, 
But it's got like these some great like Raimi touches that they don't have in a lot of their other movies, like the Dutch angles mm-hmm. and and all that stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's got Tim Robbins, and he's a young man who may, who gets to the big city at some mm-hmm. point in history when everything is Art Deco, and mm-hmm. Paul Newman plays like a big. It's kind of a precursor to the Big Lebowski. Uh, oh, shit. You know, it's uh. It is another what they call magical Negro movie, um, because there's a total What's magical. That? You never heard of a magical Negro trope? No. Oh my God! It's. <laughs> Are you sure you went to UCLA? Yeah. Uh, it's. I'm basic... sure I can. I'm sure I could understand the concept if you just explain it. I'm sure oh yeah, no, of course. Concept. I just don't know this, this expression. Oh, it's just basically all these movies that were made, especially in the 90s, were like uh, like a movie like The Legend of Bagger Vance or mm-hmm. uh, The Green Mile, where it's like mm-hmm. the black character okay. is there to literally magically solve every white person's problem. Right, right, uh, right. And like so, Nicolas Cage's Family Man. With yes, exactly, yeah, this, exactly, got exactly, it. right? Or, or Morgan Freeman in uh, Bruce Almighty. Or any other Morgan Freeman movie. Um <laughs> Yeah, okay. Fully right, understand. Right, so okay. it's like, so it's like they wouldn't do this today, but the Hudsucker Proxy does have a magical black janitor who saves, uh-huh. stops time and saves the day at the end of the movie. Yeah. But in every other way, it's a pure delight. Like right. I, I won't even say any more because there's like a big plot twist that's actually incredibly funny and delightful in that like Cohen Brothers way. Mm. Um. But uh, but oh, so I went to see the Big Lebowski in the theater, and I had what like what was a common experience to a lot of people. It's like really weird to talk to someone who's kind of always lived in a world where everyone knows the Big Lebowski, right? Mm. Because it's like mm-hmm. it's just such an offbeat movie that it was a flop in the box office, it's huge tanked. flop. I hated yeah. it the first time I saw it. Yeah. Because it was confusing. A lot of people, it's a polarizing movie. A lot of people hate yeah. that movie. Yeah, yeah. And then my friend Chris Regan, who's a great, who's uh, today is a very great, successful comedy writer, uh, said, "No, you got to watch it a second time." And like, he's like, "Because you're going to hate it the first time and love it the second time." And I then I watched it the, the second time. time. Well, you're, well, you know, that's why you have a PhD in film studies. <laughs> um, but it, but I was like, because it's just like. It doesn't really follow a lot of the beats of a movie that you're expecting, but yeah. it comes across as a movie that is gonna. And <laughs> so the first time when that detective like approaches him in his car when he's just like trying to smoke weed and has that whole conversation yeah. about fellow Seamus, and yeah. then <laughs> that guy's never in the movie again, and you're like, where yeah. did that guy go? Uh I didn't get that. But I didn't get been, any of it. He's been following him. He's been following him. Like, right. All throughout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still don't oh, entirely yeah. understand what that scene is about, but I I, I got that. it the second time, and I've seen it like 50 times already. It's like about incompetence mostly, you know? Like Amer- it's about America having a promise and they they they're just failing to meet that promise time and time again with everything. When it comes to police work, when it comes to PI work, when it comes to de- detective work, when it comes to economics, when it comes to war, you know, when it comes to democracy and freedom, right? I mean, talk about uh war in the Middle East in that movie. I mean, that's like the 
beginning of that movie. Right. Right? This aggression will not stand against yeah. Kuwait, right? And it gets called I mean, back over and over. Over and over. And and you have a Vietnam War <clears throat> veteran in that movie, John Goodman, right? And mm-hmm. and he's like shell shocked, but he's also all about justice all throughout, you know? He I mean he fought in Vietnam, but he says things like like don't use the word Chinaman, Asian American, please, you know? Right. It's not the preferred nomenclature. And then you have like a Korean War veteran. I mean, people forget like these wars, the Korean War and the Vietnam War, they were America, they were America's failures. You know, because like America thought, okay, after World War Two, no more war, man. We're like living free, you know, quaint uh, 1950s suburban life. But it's like 1950s. Korea was being blown up, you know, mm-hmm. and all the defense uh, militarism and military spending that shit really expanded during the Korean War. That's what people don't realize. And that massive military spending defense budget that's the reason why we have vietnam war that's why we have war in the middle east okay like people don't understand like that just keeps going so um, it's um, it's about america's failures and america's lies and these incompetence trying to function while holding their own ideologies you know and and just struggling with coming to terms with the fact that they're all incompetence in the society that's really interesting and the whole like landlord thing slots into that too Oh my god! It was just yeah, so fucking funny, but also like so good, <laughs> so good. The way he asks, you know, he's like, he's like, dude, it's you know, right, right. It's like it's the third or whatever, and he's like, far out. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like you just slip the rent check under my door. He's like, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Even when like the dude is like, when he's buying milk and he's writing out fifty three cents in a check. Yeah. Like yeah, you know, at Ralph's. at Ralph's, like, like so many moments like that. It's it's just like revealing about what America is, you know. And this guy being a broke piece of shit, like he still loves drinking, uh, you know, the fucking white Russians, and he still likes smoking pot, and you know, he still likes these simple luxuries like going bowling regularly, you know, living, mm-hmm. trying to live a free life, yeah. You know? in his circumstances it's, and I, I find that beautiful honestly you know and it's yeah. a very like very very in LA movie um, yeah, you man. know I moved to Hollywood and Western when I first moved here and oh. I lived a block from what I call scumbag Ralph's because it's just like <laughs> every scumbag yeah. in Hollywood goes to shoplift there yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and the first time I was there at one in the morning doing some grocery shopping I was like, holy shit, the, this is the Big Lebowski. Like, this is real. Like, <laughs> there's just people like that in this town who fucking go to grocery shopping at one in the morning, half drunk and in their bathrobe yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It, I kind of like that grimy L.A. look, you know, because <clears throat> and he's sort of um, juxtaposed against Jackie Treehorn, right? Like, this guy in fucking Malibu with, like, his, you know, penthouse and all this shit, like, with the naked chicks and all that. But this guy, like, you know, he's just a money-grubbing bastard, right? Like, he doesn't care about anything. He just wants money. Right. Actually, that's one thing you could see thematically throughout every single Coen Brothers movie. And I'm pretty sure it's in this film that you mentioned, the one that I'm not familiar with too. But every single movie, it's about money. Like money yeah. is 
the thing, the driving force. Yeah. Every well, single has... Coen Brothers movie is essentially a critique of money and its dehumanizing and problematic factors. Well, the, the Hudsucker proxy, business is, there's literally the gears of business that run the world. Like, that's kind of, like, the central theme of, of the movie is just, like... Yeah. The entire yeah. world literally runs around, literally revolves around the, the gears of business that uh, that inside the Hudsucker building. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it starts that. with the CEO of a huge corporation just deciding one day to jump out of a window and kill himself in the middle of a board meeting. Right. Mm, that's very Coen Brothers-esque, like, sudden suicide. Oh, it is. Something it could like, yeah. yeah. But I think I think my favorite of their movies is Raising Arizona still. Oh, I love w- that movie. I love it, that movie. That's a movie my dad just took home from the video store because we all liked John Goodman as a family because of Roseanne. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and, um, you know, back when, <laughs> back when we could laugh with Roseanne. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah. uh, so he brought home Raising Arizona, and it was like, holy shit. I didn't know movies like that were made. I didn't have my mind blown like that again until, like, one night I, like, I started watching Mystery Train on Cinemax, which is this mm. great Jim Jarmusch movie. Love uh, Jim Jarmusch. Love which Jim is, Jarmusch. I do, too. Um, I am upset. Can I tell you something? Yeah. I, so, Sarah Driver has a movie i think in sundance right now about the making of stranger than paradise really jarmish's yeah 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 it's about like the (laughs) all the things that they had to go through in order to make that movie happen because they were these like nyc scallywags you know like um they were the fucking 80s hipster punks of the new york streets sarah driver her sister martha driver was my professor at pace university and i was like a diehard jarmish fan since like all throughout my 20s and uh, martha driver was like, if you want you could write a letter to jim like i have his um production house address so i wrote him like uh. a typewriter typed letter that i hand hand signed later and um his assistant emailed me back <laughs> oh really <laughs> to be like Jim got your letter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but he never sent a response? No. But a Rude. year later, I met I met Jim Jarmusch in person. And uh-huh. he was so nice. Like, we right. got to talk a little bit. And I was just like, I'm so happy that I met him and that he was an awesome person in person, too. Because he was just, like, down and he was cool. I Like, Jarmusch is, like, up there for me. He's, like, one yeah. of my favorite filmmakers of all time. Yeah. I don't I don't know anyway, if I'm, yeah, mystery train. I don't know if yeah, I'm ready to be film. like at an age where the yeah. the hip edgy movie from from my childhood now has a biopic about it making the rounds. Really? Cuz that was like it's such a It's mostly about that's Sarah such a, Driver, but yeah. I mean it was just yeah. like such it was such a uh, underground thing where if you yep. knew about it you were cool. And most mm. people didn't know about it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know if I'm ready to like watch a biopic about the making of something like that. That uh, did you hear? Like, did you hear S- Steve Buscemi talk on Mark Maron's WTF? No. Okay, Steve Buscemi kind of talks about how he got to work with Jarmusch, and like that's really interesting too. I think you'd be into that. 
Yeah. I think I did listen to that interview. That was a while ago, right? It was maybe two months ago, something like that. Oh, no. Then, then I I must have listened to something else. And... I love that whole... Like, <clears throat> I watched that documentary about Rocket's Red Glare. Did you ever know Rocket's Red Glare? I apparently crossed paths with Rockets a lot, but I never talked okay. to him. Um, but okay. I started stand-up in the Lower East Side performance yeah. open mic scene in the 90s, like the mid-90s, when I was very, very, when I was a child, essentially. Was um, Old Man Hustle there back in the day? Oh, this is before Old Man Hustle, dude. This is like... Oh, shit. Uh, yeah, no, this was... I mean, I started this is in... Like... This is, like, when LES still had, like, uh, Mars bar and shit and, like, heroin people, like, shooting up inside the bars and shit. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. It was when you still, like, had, like, all the door, all the bathrooms were locked because people kept ODing in them. But it was after, so it was after, like, when everything was really scary there. Ah, uh, but before, okay. like, all the finance bros started buying uh, apartments. Uh, it's, like, okay. r- really cool four-year period where uh all the stores still had bulletproof glass but there were a lot of little black box theaters all over lower manhattan um and people lived in them it was it was like a in hindsight i wish i'd understood at the time what a special experience i was going through was yeah but yeah at the time i was just like fucking you know i was 19 i was living my life it was great uh but um but I, apparently, I think Rockets like owned a bar or worked at a bar near there. Okay. Uh, this is even before, um, God, uh, Manitoba opened his bar. Like you know, yeah. like Handsome Dick ended up opening his own bar on Avenue A, and oh. then you like walk past a Handsome. But Avenue I saw, A and what? I th- I'm sorry, Avenue B. I think. Oh, okay. I used Avenue. to live on Avenue A. I lived on Avenue A and Twelfth. Oh, near 18. Sidewalk. Yeah, yeah. Which is closed. Yeah. And they had Milk Bar right across the street from me, which is closed. Yeah. yeah. All gone. All um, gone. But, uh, yeah, I crossed paths. Like, one night Bikini Kill showed up to perform at this open mic just kind of very randomly. Wow. It was, uh, I ended up, like, I ended up crossing paths. Like, I, I hung out with Taylor Mead a few times. I didn't like him. But... <laughs> He's like a legendary Warhol guy. Uh-huh. Uh, just all these like old beatniks and like just hearing all the all the gossip from the days of the beatnik era. That's interesting. Yeah. It's like it, I guess like a rude way of saying it is like they're like the backwash of that generation. You know, the leftovers, the ones who didn't die. You know, right. The ones who have the stories in their heads and they're still crawling about talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean. Yeah. yeah, it's like I ended up getting. I don't know if you can see it. I don't feel like getting up because I'm not wearing pants. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I have an Amari Baraka book, SOS, right there. Oh, wow. Because just when I was a kid, all the old beats yeah. hated him. They all yeah. like. Yeah. He was not good to his wife. Uh-huh. Uh, he left her and their kid and uh, started over, changed his name from Leroy Jones. Uh, and they were all really uh, mad at him. And so then I was at City Lights Bookstore, and I saw this book, and I was like, well, let me see what he's about. Turns out, sure. not a fan. Like, just like, <laughs> a lot of beat poetry doesn't... I love the stories of the beats, yeah. and I love reading about them, and I love... I've got Allen Ginsberg's book up there, too, which is mm-hmm. a great book about... But a lot of the beat stuff, like, the actual poetry is just like, well... 
I know. Because that's how I feel about, like, Patti Smith, for instance. Like, uh-huh. I like reading about her. I love her stories, but I'm not into her music at all. But I love who she influenced, like Cat Power, like right. PJ Harvey, you know? I could listen to Cat Power, PJ Harvey all day, every day, you know? Mm-hmm. But I'm not into Patti Smith's music, per se. That's really interesting. I, I like Patti Smith a lot. She's not my favorite. But uh, she's someone I had to really, like... I mean, part of it was, you know, when I grew up, it's like th- she had a couple of hits that got pl- like just played out on radio. Right. Uh, you know, like right. one that turned out turned out Bruce Springsteen wrote it. It's really like crazy. Oh, interesting. Uh, Springsteen, by the way, interesting cat. Like uh, someone I used to kind of just write off as like a, just a like another just rocker whose music got played on the radio all the time, and I was like yeah. sick of it for a while, and I was like not yeah. cool. Yeah. Just not into it. Uh-huh. But then I started reading about him, and I like kind of rediscovered his music, because I read... I just thought he was just like another fucking Jersey meathead rocker mm-hmm. guy. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out like... You should really... Very interesting. He wrote... Uh, he was very into disco at a time when it was not cool to be into disco. Fascinating. And he like kind of, in the 70s, was talking about how... It was it was racist and homophobic to like the attitude that people had toward disco because when I grew up, you know, I grew up in an area where it was all about hard rock, right? Like uh-huh. uh, either heavy metal or classic rock, uh-huh. and if you liked anything else, it was very suspect. So yeah, to me, it was yeah. just like normal to say disco sucks, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then, but then, like you you listen to disco and you're like, holy shit, there's some amazing music in this. Like it's psychedelic. Like, psychedelic but also the horns in your average great disco song uh-huh. are like these guys not only have to play well they have to play uh-huh. to the beat and they uh, have to like wow. fucking really hit every note exactly and it's a funky beat it's not a very typical beat no and yeah. it's a fast beat at least yeah. for the time you know like yeah. it's yeah. before you know there was 100 songs at 180 beats per second so you're marveling at their skill yeah. Yeah. But also just not only but like the musicianship and so there's just like a lot of soul in a Bee Gees song that uh-huh. uh that like I didn't really understand when I was younger because I wasn't exposed to like really good disco music. Like the only disco music I was exposed to as a kid was on uh, Sesame Street Fever, which huh. by the way is a song this. Oh my god. <laughs> it's it's just basically these old Sesame Street songs done to a disco beat. Uh, uh-huh. and But it turns out Robin Gibbs was all over that album. And, like, all these legit uh, legit musicians were on it. So, okay. I, you know, I loved, I loved it as a kid because it had, like, Rubber Ducky and, and Grover and yeah. all that. Yeah. But as an adult, I'm listening. I'm like, holy shit, this is tight. Like, this it's is really good. It's a major TV production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Serious shit, yeah. 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 Anyway, what is it? What about that band Boney M? Never heard of him. Interesting. Uh, my friend Thomas Booker, he's like in his fifties now. <laughs> he's, he's like pushing sixty. Um, uh, he like he just like messaged me randomly, like like a song. It's like Boney M, my favorite band, and I was like, yeah, it's dope, <laughs> man. You know. But interestingly, um, South Koreans know Boney M very well. Because there's this one Boney M song that they 
recycled and they made into their own song like these korean comedians like five comedians they like redid that song into their own thing and like made boney m super fucking popular but boney m i would say is like that sort of funk disco kind of band i think you'd be into their music if you're into them i'll listen to it you're into disco um let me let me ask you this yeah oh you ask me it's your podcast you ask me no 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 go ahead ask me first it's fine so, so last week, I think we were talking, or the week before, and you were telling before. me that you teach Asian cinema at UCLA, is that? No, um, I do not teach Asian cinema. I teach, my specialty and my research is Korean television. That's Korean what television, that's it. Yeah. And so like, what, it, I know nothing about Korean television. Well, you know something about Korean television because you see how popular Squid Game is today, and that's technically I've never Korean television. And I've watched Mash, which uh, <laughs> had had a Japanese actors playing Koreans. Actually, there was one Korean on Mash, and he was a stand-up comic named Johnny Yoon. <clears throat> and I wrote a yeah. whole paper about this fucking guy. But he was Johnny in Yoon. Mash. Yeah, oh, that's right. Mash. They call me yeah. Bruce. They call me Bruce. And they still they call, call me Bruce. Bruce. And they still call me Bruce. Actually, they still call me Bruce. I think Kino Lorber distributes their DVDs. Really? And even Yeah, yeah. Even though I was working at Kino at the time, like I just didn't know what the fuck I was looking at. And I was like, what is this? Like, who's this guy? Johnny um, Yoon's an interesting story because that guy was on Carson like a hundred times. Like Carson, times. he loved Johnny Yoon, right? Loved Johnny Yoon. And NBC gave Johnny Yoon three pilots because Carson loved Johnny Yoon. And Uh because Fred Silverstein, who at the time was like the executive for any sitcom, right? Like he was over at CBS, ABC, and then he like NBC was like, please, like we need you. Like in the late 70s, early 80s, like NBC was like the shittiest network of all three. And Fred Silverstein got hired in order to re- recuperate NBC and said Johnny Yoon maybe you can be the first person of color to have a talk show of your own and gave Johnny Yoon a variety show a variety show like a tonight show basically for like Johnny Yoon was leading it he was the host he was Was the fucking host was that before or after um god what's it called uh the one with the two women and and the comedian ruined his career Pink Lady and Jeff. Uh, that I don't know. That oh, okay. I don't know. But but this like they gave him this variety show in a period where variety shows were on their way out. You know, right? Like variety shows were back then. They were very expensive because they mm-hmm. had like like line dancers. They had like all this fucking thing, and it was a very expensive production. And people weren't all that interested. They were getting into like sitcoms. They were getting into action action uh tv shows they were getting into social issues you know getting down with that and they were just like what the fuck are we gonna watch a variety show with this like weird like asian guy for and it it tank like it didn't i don't think it went to um and it didn't have a long life so all of his pilots just went to shit he even had a sitcom he had a sitcom that was supposed to be like a all in the family but right so johnny yoon is married to a woman a white lady and he lives with the white lady's parents and the father his father-in-law 
is like the Archie Bunker type. Like he's a bigot. He just says all okay. this bigoted shit to Johnny Yoon. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like a sitcom about that. But while they were filming that, Johnny Yoon had like a mental breakdown. <laughs> he had an emotional breakdown because NBC was working him so hard. You know, three TV shows in one fucking year. And he just felt so trapped and taken advantage of. So he just stormed out and then his career <laughs> never, never recovered. But after that, he made They Call Me Bruce. Right. Because he had the money to do it. Yeah. I think it's interesting that he was doing an all in the family type show because that's not his stand up style at all. I know, I know. Like, I know. like he he was very much about like he had that joke about like something about rice. Like some some guys have long rice. I have minute rice. Oh yeah, yeah, the minute rice thing. It had to do with a uh, sexual like him having sex. Like right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he had another joke about rice where they were like, you know, how he was like, Americans throw rice at weddings <clears throat> and, you know, my family goes and picks up the rice off the floor or something like that. Like, it's like very like, you know, it's hack humor. If you think about it, it's hack. Uh-huh. It's like uh, racialized. It's um, it's like Uncle Tom, like kind of it's like Ken Junction. <laughs> like all of us Asian American, uh, Korean American comics, we, we all collectively make fun of Ken Jung a lot. Seriously? Just like he's the yeah, because we're like he's the guy who just drank Hollywood's fruit punch and said, "Go ahead, make fun of me for my Asian identity, make fun of me for my Asian masculinity, have at it all you want." And that's why Ken Jung flies around in private jets. Okay, like it does pay to degrade yourself down to that level, but right, the Korean American comics, all of us collectively, we all make fun of him. And none of us respect him. Do you, um, <laughs> I think that's very interesting because I know that like, yeah. uh, oh, I've got a great book up here. <laughs> Again, I'm not going to stand up, but, uh, yeah. but it's a, a guy named Burt Williams and mm-hmm. Burt Williams was the biggest comedian in the world. Like he was the mm-hmm. biggest comedy star in the world. He was a black man. Mm-hmm. He and his, uh, partner, uh his his comedy partner they had they were the first black actors to star in a broadway show and they would like write mm. write and produce their own shows and then his he and his partner yeah. had a big breakup his partner died and bert was like kind of the sad man who went on his own and was like the biggest star in vaudeville ever wow um and he wore blackface for a very long time like like in the 20s already people were like enough with the blackface uh uh-huh. but bert williams like Burt Williams, like him and Pig Pigmy Markham, were two ga- were two guys who just like wore the blackface a lot longer than than they should have. Um, uh huh. Uh-huh. And but they had but like, they had a politicized purpose behind it. No, I think like you, you read about Burt Williams and you get the sense that like he was this very shy guy who was afraid of a lot of people a lot, and maybe the blackface was used as a way to to have a mask. Maybe like but, a clown thing. He was kind of a clown. I mean, maybe. But the but yeah. the result was like there were a lot of people who were very mad at Burt Williams. Like black comics and actors who were very mad at him because he just refused. Like he refused to, you know. And so Yeah. But but what's interesting about that is, you know, yeah after a while people have kind of 
people remember him. Very few people remember him. But they they've kind yeah. of like come around to saying like, well, this was a guy who who had to suffer a lot to kind of be a famous black man in a in a yeah. world where like he he was the biggest star on vaudeville and he would tour these these like huge great vaudeville theaters but he wasn't allowed to stay in hotels he wasn't allowed to use the f- the front entrance mm. uh <laughs> at the theaters where he was performing like he yeah. would be performing in front of these segregated audiences where like yeah yeah you know all the black people were in the balconies uh right you know and he, he suffered a lot so I guess what I'm saying is, like, there may come a time when you see Ken Jong as, like, a guy who had to put up with a lot of shit to be successful and, like, put himself out there as a, as a face for, for Asian comedians at a time. Like, think about the yeah. 90s and 2000s when he, yeah. when he broke. Who else was yeah. there? You know? Margaret Cho. Margaret Cho? Yeah. Yes. Margaret Cho, who uh, suffered a lot. Like, you read about she what she went a through. Lot. So much trauma there. You read she about kind of what... went through the same thing that Johnny Yu went through, and that like the people yes. handling her her sitcom. I mean, nobody was equipped to handle a Korean American story at all, so they no. were just all bullshitting, making shit up, and turning into this hallucination—a white man's imaginary hallucination of what they are projecting to be a Korean American family household. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like you could have slotted anyone into that role. I mean, it was like yeah. it, she starred in it. But you could have slotted any comedian into that role, and it would have been pretty much the same show. Yeah. I mean, there's always that sacrificial lamb in a way. There's always that martyr right. figure. I mean, I don't uh, detest Ken Jeong. I just don't respect him because, you know, I mean, but, you know, Ken Jeong, he profited from it. You know, he made the right. money from it. He, I think he knows deliberately what it is that he's doing. You know, Ken Jeong is actually somebody who performs yellow face. I mean, that's what, what do he mean? does. He's yellow face as in it's like blackface right like this guy Burt Williams he's a black uh performer who's performing in blackface right yes, like so yes. whatever whatever makes the white spectator laugh and make fun of that stereotype more and and cater to their pleasure Ken Jeong does yellow face performance in that you know he sort of talks in this orientalist stilted way sometimes in order to poke fun of Asians and how far back does that Asian stereotype go it goes back to the beginning of you know um like Asian stereotypes yellow peril all of that shit right um so Ken Jeong is is a that's why we call him Uncle Tom because he's enacting yellow face performances in his work um but it's like after the hangover franchise he did uh-huh. try to do his own thing right he had his own sitcom dr ken and he had right. he had his stand-up special which is like a d- disastrous debacle of a horseshit crap it's awful but i i'm like down with his hustle you know and it's like he knew how to game it he was gaming the system at the expense of his asian american identity and I'm not I'm not saying that that is necessarily wrong. It's just something I'm not on board with. You know, like that's not the kind of career I would ever want. You know, no, like, Grace. do I want? Yeah. I'm sorry. Go go. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll ask yeah. questions. It's like, you do don't. I do I do I want that? Do I want that kind of life at the expense of this, knowing the history of where these kinds of stereotypes come from? And the answer is no. Um, but then I look at somebody like Randall Park and I'm like, I'm down with what he's doing. You know, yeah. I like what he does. I, I love Ali Wong and what she's about. I John, loved her book. John her Cho's book great. 
John Cho. John Cho is so overlooked, yeah. but John Cho was in a sitcom on yeah. major TV network in the late 90s, early 2000s. I remember yeah. seeing him. And um, a lot <clears throat> of these guys, like John Cho and Ken Jeong, like dudes of that generation, all of their roles, like even Ken Jeong in like Community, all of these like Asian male roles, they like when they had lines, they would be like this weird, hysterical, like uh, disruptive, dysfunctional kind of element that would cause like wreak havoc. They would be the problem element, you know. And I find I find right. that in some ways one one way of productive thinking. Because it's like, how is that going up against this other stereotype of Asians being the model minority and all fucking rigid and straight edged and intelligent and higher educated and aiming for these kinds of professional jobs, right? You got that going. But against that stereotype, how are these kinds of figures undoing that, right? So like, while Ken Jeong pisses me off sometimes, if I try to compare it to that, other structure, the structure that the right wing wants to use in their conservative rhetoric, then I'm like, I can see the productive work that people like Ken Jeong and John Cho were doing in sitcoms. Now, let me ask you this. I'm actually, this is a serious question. I'm genuinely curious about this. Yeah. What if I one day said to you, hey, I've got a thing, a project. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want you to play a, a like a tiger mom, like a real mm-hmm. Asian tiger mom, and you'll get one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars for it. Like, would you would you feel comfortable saying no to that? Right now, at this time, I would have to think about it. Oh, that's the problem, right? I mean, you know, it is. That... I would just have to think about it. I would have to know more about it. I would have to know more about it in terms of like. Do you want me to use an accent? If the oh, yeah. is yes, then I would, oh, say yeah. no. I would say no. I would say absolutely no. No, no, but Grace, no, no. you're the only person that can do this 225,000. <laughs> no. No, you want me to do a fucking accent? No, I don't want to do it. But you'd yeah. be All right, 325 <laughs> and I you'd have to do the accent, but I'd let you work like collaborate with me on 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 your role a little bit and write your lines. But you would definitely be playing an Asian mom who's like nagging her son to do better in school. I don't mind nagging my son to do better in school. Uh-huh. That I could do all day, every day. No fucking problem. That's real. But I don't right. want to do an accent. Okay. I would stand very right with that. Yeah. I know. Isn't it? Isn't it? I feel conflicted as I'm saying this. That's a really good question. I love your question. Yeah. I feel conflicted doing that. But it's like I don't feel comfortable putting on an accent at all i would rather you hire a korean like fob who Uh and there are plenty of them in la who if if they're speaking english like their english would just have an accent like from whatever you know whatever fob you know proximity they are to their nation and what does fob mean oh fresh off the boat oh yeah yeah yeah. well yeah yeah but what if i said like actually well i grew up in queens around a lot of asian families yeah. And I was like, eh, it's just uh, based on a character. But it's very interesting, you know, because, like, I grew up in a household. My dad's family were all Irish, right? Yeah. Uh, but he grew up in a time when his dad, his parents were not, 
it was a different time. People were not really like into the whole what's my ethnic background thing. And they were just very much about being assimilated Americans. Yes. So I, I didn't really grow up with a lot of Irish pride in my house. Because also mm-hmm. my dad's family came from the came off the famine boats, which was like a long time mm-hmm. ago. And they okay. just fucking wanted to be Americans and eat. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, they were like they left Ireland for a very bunch of very good reasons, um, yeah. and but it, but so when I so as a result, I kind of was aware that there were Irish people, and I grew up around a lot of them in Queens, yeah. but they were all Irish Americans. Yeah. And then one day, I saw <laughs> the uh, St. Patrick's Day parade on Fifth Avenue, and I was like, "What the fuck am I looking at?" Because it's yeah. like a lot of people who are not Irish feeling oh. very, very comfortable yeah. throwing around a lot of anti-Irish uh, sentiment and stereotypes. Yeah. And and people in this country and are... And getting wasted, which is an getting, Irish stereotype. W- w- which, by the way, I've been to Dublin. It's a, it's a thing. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been wasted in Dublin. It's, not, it's actually not fun. Um, it's... it's <laughs> Because it's a lot of like uh, a lot of those European countries are very dark a lot of the year and cold, and everyone's just fucking depressed and angry all the time. Yeah, and the and they just drink like crazy uh, to deal with it. Exactly, exactly. It's like that's that's why they're the stereotypes about the Irish drinking and fighting because they do, but also like the British do it and the you know the Scottish and just fucking that whole British. uh, When I heard what people in london do after work i was shocked like my friend says she she lived in london for like seven years and worked there lived there she said after work they would just go to a pub and just start drinking no dinner just fucking getting smashed and then they would just like go to a a shop and get like a kit kat bar and then go to sleep and go to work again i'm like what the fuck like that was just so shocking and worrisome to me, but she said that's the culture in London. That's how they go down. Oh yeah, the reason the pubs close at midnight is because if they were open till two, they would die. I mean, that's just <laughs> like. Um, I don't drink anymore, and I'm so happy I don't. And Koreans drink a lot too. This is something mm-hmm. I'm kind of thinking about lately. Like, drinking culture is so. It's such an integral part of the Korean social fabric, like. I went to Korea. The last time I was in Korea was twenty, late twenty eighteen, early twenty nineteen. I was there conducting field work for my dissertation, and I was hanging out with a lot of stand up comedians in Korea, and okay. like that, it's just a bonding ritual. You go out while you're eating. Korean Koreans always eat as they drink. They never just drink only. They gotta eat, and that's why they could drink for so fucking long it's because they're they're like you know (laughs) their stomach is nice and sturdy because they ate a meal so they they just drink like motherfuckers motherfuckers they'll drink when they're sad they'll drink when they're happy they'll drink when they're bored they'll drink to work uh bond at work oh my god they'll drink to decompress they'll drink at funerals they'll drink at (laughs) they'll drink all the time and I'm looking at that culture through television right now, and I'm looking at like companies like Chinno and Height, which are the the soju and beer 
producers in Korea and their sponsorship in these kinds of TV shows and movies and how prevalent it is. Like in every single episode of a, of a show, you're going to see drinking. Every single one. There's like not a single episode where somebody's not going to have a drink. They're always going to have soju. They're always going to have a beer. And the reason it, it could be any fucking reason, it, it would still be normal and applicable. And I'm just like, this is why so many women get sexually assaulted in the workplace. It's because drinking is part of the whole deal. It's like, what makes you think it's okay to get shit-faced as part of the job and not expect men to get sexually aggressive? It's gonna fucking happen. And when is that gonna end? It's like, these shows are critiquing that kind of culture and critiquing the patriarchy and the, the drunken aggressiveness. But at the same time, they're constantly pushing and advertising drinking in their shows for any fucking occasion. And I'm just looking at that that tension there. And I'm like, why isn't anybody calling this out? It's weird. In any what, case, yeah, Koreans drink just as much as the Irish. I want to know what Korean stand-up comedy is like. Oh, right now? You know what? You could actually see them. They're on Netflix right now. And uh, this is what's happening in Korea. This is my whole dissertation. So... Uh comedians in korea the way that they would get their um jobs is they would have to go through the the star hiring process which is through the tv networks so it could it could be one of the big three it was sbs kbs and nbc so they would just go it's like an open audition open call audition and anybody can literally go and just like audition like perform and it's usually like cheesy ass gags like sketch stuff like like um like gimmicky shit with like props and makeup and hair and like you know very like slapsticky and you know it's like very old school old timey shit and uh actually very vaudevillian if you think about it and uh Mm -hmm. they had all these sketch variety shows that were very popular they were all family oriented really uh like like you know tame mild stuff and then so they would go through the star recruiting process and then pick maybe like seven to ten out of the hundreds if not thousands who applied and then they would make it right make the cut and then what they have to fucking do is um hope that they will end up getting some airtime because a lot of them would not get airtime because they just got hired instead they would end up doing all this like bullshit grunt work for the seniors who are more established mm-hmm. they would go and get coffee for them they would go and get their lunch they would go and run their personal errands they would go and you know like kiss ass to the one writer and the one director for the entire show it's nothing like snl where you have writers and you know it's right. like so fucking hierarchical rigid militant um they would practice corporal punishment on their juniors like you know just because everybody in korea all the men went to military and they all have they think that that's like the way to do things and it's just like punishing right and then last year the longest ever sketch variety show that was in korea it ended after something like 30 40 years they just they ended it because nobody's fucking watching these shows so the comedians they don't have the star recruiting system anymore because the networks are no longer producing these shows so they don't have a need for these comedians so the comedians who are trying to become comedians make it they don't know what the fuck to do those are stand uh-huh. those are doing stand up comedy right now okay. and and then the ones who are more established who already have star status because they were on television for t- like 2 3 4 decades 
they're getting stand-up specials via Netflix. And three of them okay. did get it on, and they're on Netflix right now. And they're terrible. They're ter- right. <laughs> they're terrible because they're not stand-up comedians. They're sketch comics, right? It's a whole completely different fucking beast. In fact, one of them, uh, Nare Park, she was actually supposed to be in the Netflix comedy festival last year. She was supposed to perform at the Wiltern, and then they uh-huh. they canceled it because of COVID. In her Netflix special, you can see her reading reading her lines from monitors on the stage man like she's fucking (laughs) reading her jokes bro i was like are you shitting me are you fucking shitting me but that just shows you that exposes how they're just utterly unprepared for stand-up specials from netflix but Korea's getting them because Korea and Netflix have they're in this fucking love fest right now, you know? They're down to do whatever they fucking want. And the ones who get to do them are the ones who have star power right now. But you have yeah. these genuine stand-up comics who are coming up, people who got ditched from the star recruiting system who never even made their big break on television because their shows got canceled. Those guys, and then you have other locals who are who've just been doing stand-up comedy like on their own through little open mics here and there. And they just have no media ecosystem to, to support their dream. So they're relying on things like YouTube. They're relying on things like TikTok. They're relying on live performances. They're just doing their own thing. So it's a fertile ground for new stuff and innovative stuff. But um, it's also like I just don't see the light right now as of now. You know, it's kind of it's kind of sad. It's a bummer. But um, yeah, I've been talking for too long. No, no, that's it's all right. It's a, yeah. that's very interesting to me. Um, yeah, you know, it's a, it was a real eye opener. I performed. I mean, I, I haven't been in Europe in a while, but I used to perform in Europe. And what boy, country I, specifically? Well, Ireland, England, mm-hmm. Scotland, but also like okay. Sweden, Germany. Um, Did you ever go to Berlin? I love Berlin. It's my favorite. I love Berlin, man. Berlin's I came, the best. I came really close to moving there for a while. Me and too. I, I wish I had. Uh, me too. I love Berlin. I, not Their too late, comedy man. scene's I... fucking popping. Their comedy now scene it is. is like it Dude, is when, full on. When I first started going there, it was there was uh, the Kookaburra Comedy Club, which I would perform at every time I went there. It's which still was there, great. but it was owned by different guys. Yeah, yeah. Is it? That's too bad. I loved the owners. No, no. It's a, it's a good like. So, cosmic comedy. Do you know cosmic comedy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those guys took over Kookaburra. Okay. Well, yeah. The, so it's, the it's people, in good hands. It used to be like this great family-run, basically a family-run comedy club, and like. Yeah. It was really interesting because the couple that owned it had their own sitcom. It was like a white lady wow. and an Indian guy. Yeah. Uh, and they had a yeah. sitcom about their lives, and I think they used that money to open the club and or whatever. But uh, oh, fascinating! Yeah, I think that's the story. But uh, this woman used to just run in English. I mean, this is how Podunk Berlin comedy used to be. This woman, mm. Kim Eustace, was this Australian woman uh-huh. who uh, went moved to Berlin and just mm. ran a uh, a comedy variety night once a month called English uh, English. English comedy night, I think it was. I still have the mug uh-huh. somewhere. Uh-huh. Uh, but I would just go there, you know, pay all right, and I would just spend a week in Berlin, like, just kind of hanging out. and. Yeah. Fucking, I understand it's very, very different there now. Um, 
But at the time, Their it was English like... English stand-up comedy scene is, like, it's pretty it's pretty great. Like, I, whenever I go to Berlin, I'll just go for three months, and I'll just, like, use it like boot camp. I just... I get stage time every fucking night. There's always right. a fucking audience. I just do my thing. I'll write 45 minutes of new stuff every time I go. Of course, like, once I bring it back to the States, maybe, like, 10, 15 is only good, but I write, like, a motherfucker when I'm in Berlin. And it's just and, such a great vibe. I mean, Berlin oh has always reminded God, me of so like good. the uh, the East Village when I was going there in the '90s. Like that's just kind yeah. of like, what yeah. A, but in fact, if I don't get into these uh, f- film classes I'm applying to, I think I'm going to just go there for six months and just kind of sublet my apartment and do it. Like do exactly what you're Bro. talking about. It is so um, fun. I I love going every fucking year. And this year, in 2022, in the summer, I really want to go if I can. Just put too. all my shit up in storage and just fucking just go. We'll go be roommates. I love Berlin. Yeah, I'm man, serious, Grace. I, I would do Berlin. that. We could get like a nice apartment <laughs> if we if we pool our money. We get we don't have to live in a fucking shithole. Well, whenever I went to Berlin, I never lived in a shithole. I would just it would just be expensive because like as yeah. foreigners like airbnb and all the, they just jack up the fucking prices yeah hell yeah, i would still be paying less i would be paying less than what i would pay when i'm in la for sure so it wouldn't be too big of a jump but still like fucking i love berlin and the only thing the reason why i didn't stay in berlin though and i came back to la is because there's a limit to how high you can get in in Germany as a comic because you gotta speak German. Like right. English standard comedy scene is such a small niche pocket, and economically it doesn't make sense. If you want to get on television and get a show and all, you gotta know German. You gotta be fluent in German. The other reason why I was like I'm not gonna stay in Berlin is because, yeah, I'm like one of the better comics when I'm in Berlin, but like. I want to be in LA or New York with the rigor, you know, get really fucking good. And I was, it's, it was clear to me that LA and New York have the best standups. Berlin doesn't have it. Seoul doesn't have it. Barcelona doesn't have it. Amsterdam doesn't have it. Nowhere in the fucking world do they have the best standup comedians who perform in English, which is the best language for standup comedy. They don't have it. It's in L.A. or it's in New York. And that was fucking clear to me. So I was like, nah. You think L.A. has the best comedy scene? (laughs) Well, I mean, I feel really, really I feel really bad for anyone who starts in L.A. Because this is a shitty town to start in. It's a shitty town to start in. I think and, it's a shitty uh, town to start in if you just stay here. I think it's okay if you like go on the road, or if you go to festivals, and you travel internationally. Then I think it's doable. But I feel the I didn't opposite. Start, I didn't. I didn't start comedy in New York. I started in Los Angeles. So um, I don't see a lot of rigor in comics here. I see a lot of personalities. I'll say this, and I'm probably saying too much for something that's being recorded and potentially listened to. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to find a very there's a very political way of saying this. When I first hit LA five years ago, I would see comics where I would say, "Boy, that person for for someone who's new, they're really good. And if you give them five or seven years, they'll develop into something really worth watching." And then you talk to them and find out they've been doing it for ten or fifteen or twenty years. Oh yeah. And you're like, "Oh, that person is bad." 
but they're just good enough to perform on each other's like their friends shows and do these like open mics and then five years later they're still doing the same fucking three minutes at open mics that they've always been doing and you're like oh this is this is bad and this is a town that's filled with 1500 of them and it's a little frustrating because you're competing for all the same opportunities with 1500 people yeah and yeah you know and it's like i've actually i think i've gotten worse as a comedian since i moved here I've gotten better at everything else, uh, yeah. actually. So I'm, I'm not like upset yeah. that I moved here, but just yeah. strictly as a stand-up comic, I've gotten lazier yeah. and uh, I, I've just kind of written less. It's yeah. like just, it's a great place to find yourself as an all-around. And actually, this is something I really needed: is I've gotten the discipline as a yeah. writer that I lacked in New York. Because um, uh, I was like very disciplined as a stand-up comedy writer, yeah. Uh, but there's just no real incentive to learn how to write screenplays or fucking pilots unless your plan is to move to LA eventually and work on them. Right. Which for right. a long time it wasn't for me. Like for a long time I was just kind of doing well in stand-up. And why, like, why did you move to LA then? Because I want to be a writer and I want to make money. I mean that's where the real money is. There's no money in stand-up Got comedy. It. Unless you're like extremely lucky, which I I I am lucky. I've had a good career. I've had a better career yeah. than most, and I can't complain. Yeah. But yeah. I don't have that thing. At the end of the day, I don't have that thing that makes uh, TV executives excited, and I don't have that thing that like pops as a performer. And I understand that. Like, I'm not like a guy who I'm a guy who people enjoy watching, and I do well on stage. But I'm not a guy that like has that next level thing where people are like, "Oh my God, this guy's like we have like I just can't stop watching this guy." Like, <laughs> like Pat Oswalt's a guy you could watch for two hours, right? And I have a very very hard limit at an hour. Like just mm. like at an hour, my audiences are done. Like mm. <laughs> even if I'm having a great time and I want to keep rolling, at an hour, I can feel the energy and interest drop off. You know, I I recorded my last album uh, at the Bell House in Brooklyn, and I went for about an hour 20. And I would say the last 10 minutes of that, uh, the audience was just like, kind of like, all right, (laughs) we're enjoying this, but it's time to go. Not checked Uh, out, but it's just like you could uh, feel the energy starting to go. Taking a dip, okay. Right, and it's like someone like Chappelle could go for four or six hours, and like people will stick with him. But I'm just not that guy. So. You know, I'm like, okay, well, then I got to pivot. I have a lot of other strengths, you know, as a writer and, and whatever. And I've, yeah. I've had some success as a writer before I moved here. And so I was like, all right, man, uh, you know, why am I yeah. going to spend the rest of my life and my career beating my head against a wall when it's not working? Uh, you know, so why not, like, uh, why not find something that also works for me? And I can got keep it. doing the stand-up while I pursue all this other stuff. Yeah. I love stand up though. It's like my first and yeah, me too. Love. It's like yeah, I've been I've been doing it for twenty five years. It's uh, you yeah. know, yeah, I don't do it because I hate it, but <laughs> <laughs> but L A yeah. makes it really challenging to love it, in my experience. I think that's why it depends on the person. I think because I know about the people you speak of, 
Uh-huh. And yeah, I see them too. And you know, you also have like these fucking, you know, fucking clown not the respectful actual clown acts, but like literal right. fucking piece of shit bullshit clowns who they got no material and they just want to pass with their fucking personalities and their fucking <laughs> TikTok videos and it's just a load of bullshit, it's a load of crap. But it's like for me, I I always make an effort to write something new every day if not every week. Like I I stay on top of that and I I go to mics regularly. This week I can't cuz my sh- car is at the shop. But it's like I just it's like it's I have the inner rigor and I have the inner authority, the inner discipline. Your car's in the shop? Yeah, my Ho- Holy shit. Failed. Dude, yeah. I know where you live. That is I know. You are, it's a lonely. You are alone. I am perched up here. Up I'll tell in you the what, castle. Grace. I'm a Rapunzel. I am slammed with work. Yeah. But at the end of the week, if you need a ride to a mic or something like Friday, just yeah. hit me up and I'll. Thank Holy you. shit. I'll take the yeah, 20 minute man. drive to where you live and then. I mean, I'm so like, I'm so <laughs> grateful for Liquid Zoo being across the street from me. Oh, like, well, now. Now strangers Sunday. on the internet know where you live. <laughs> so you're going to get murdered. That's fine. I love Liquid Zoo. I was there on Sunday, and it was actually a really nice vibe this past Sunday. Like, I had a great time, and I felt comfortable. I was, like, riffing, uh-huh. came up with new stuff. It was a nice time. Um, okay, I want to I wanna ask you some flashcard questions based on a TV show. This is, like, the gimmick part of the podcast. So of course, this I is what the fans you, have been waiting for. Yeah. They're yeah, like, this, they're like, they this is great. <laughs> when do we get to the flashcards, Grace? Come on. When are they? gonna talk about korean dramas for fuck's sake yeah yeah it's actually I'm, like I, I would talk to you about korean dramas because i know very little about i haven't watched squid games uh and if that's my entry point to korean tv then it's gonna i think know, you I, would like squid game i oh I i'm sure i would like love squid it game. but i just haven't watched yeah. it yet so that's like i know yeah. nothing about korean television let me know what you think after you watch it. And uh, I okay. did two episodes on Squid Game for this podcast too. And uh, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a viewing assignment also. Yeah, okay, I watched yeah. the last movie I watched was last week. Okay. It was a crazy movie from 1970. Oh. It was a Japanese girl biker movie called Ooh. Stray Cat Rock Delinquent Girl Boss. Uh, very very Japanese movie title. Um, I want to see this movie so badly. It's about uh, it's about biker gangs in L in in L A in Tokyo. Uh, biker and gangs. It's ba- basically it's this production company where they watch these Roger Corman American International Picture violent sex biker movies, and uh-huh, it blew uh-huh. their minds, and then they decided to make their own. Uh, nice. and so, but the, but the, one of the leads is this woman who's a biker, tough as shit, yeah. Yeah. lesbian, like just like oh. dances with all the girls. Yeah. yeah There's yeah, like, yeah. they all hang out at a club. I, I didn't understand like the Japanese cinema back then was so open about, uh, I guess you call it queer lifestyle now. When I was yeah. young, we called it alternative lifestyle, but, uh, that's oh. very, it's like, there's this. Yeah. This comic relief trio, two guys and a woman, they're just constantly making out in a corner of the club. <laughs> just fucking yeah. uh, absolutely great. Very violent. 
Like there's a. It sounds very well, punk rock, but it's like seventies. Extremely and... well, se- punk rock was the seventies, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a rock band. This girl, this girl, woman, like uh, yeah. sometimes just j- steps on stage and starts singing lead with the band. Uh, That's amazing. It's fucking crazy. This sounds like a movie that was made for me. I like this assignment. I'm. Gonna, I'm telling you, and so I'm gonna get into it. Yeah. I was. I bought this. This is a Blu-ray series from Arrow, but it's a. It's okay. a. It's up on up on YouTube, but uh, okay. But you can find you can find it streaming on Amazon Prime. I think it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, okay. It's a much better print because it's the Arrow <laughs> print. But uh, yeah. anyway, um, and it's very very low budget. So it, sometimes yeah. it feels like you're watching a documentary. Mm. Anyway, I just uh, I just had yeah. the vibe that you might this might be a movie that would appeal to you. Oh yeah, are you kidding? This sounds like exactly the kind of thing I'd want to see. <laughs> yeah, huge hit. Yeah, delinquent girl I, boss. I, delinquent girl boss. I love that. I love the title too. Fuck, stray cat delinquent. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. I wrote it down. I will watch it. Okay, I'm going to ask you some flashcard questions based on a show called The King's Affection, which the series just ended this week. So you can all see the whole thing. The finale is from this week. Um, It is a 20-episode miniseries. It's based on the Joseon Dynasty period. So it's a period piece, but it's Hmm. not based on any real actual lived kings or queens. This is all just made up. So it's like hybrid. No, this is Korean. This is a Korean, Korean. drama. Okay, okay. Everything here is Korean drama. Okay. And it is uh it is about um a woman who is passing as a king. That's what it's about. Okay. Okay. So let me ask you some questions based on scenes from the show and you would just answer what you would do if you were in this situation, okay? Okay. So, let's say let's say you're the queen of Korea. All right. Mm -hmm. You just gave birth to twins, a boy and a girl, the Mm -hmm. doctor, the queen dowager, your father and the king all say that the girl needs to be killed because twins are a bad omen Hmm. and they have a son that can be the crown prince. So they say we have to kill the girl. What do you do? I'm going to make a guess about how this story went. Okay. She gave secretly. She said she killed. She said she killed the baby, right? She tells everyone yeah. she killed the baby, but she gives it up yeah. for adoption, and yeah. it's raised as a commoner. And then yeah. it one day comes back to take uh, the throne, and I'm guessing that this is the girl that ends up masquerading as the king. Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah, but what would you do if you were this mother, the mother of these twins? I would do what she did. I would say I killed the baby, and uh, okay. I mean that's that's a story that goes back to Moses. <laughs> no, it is. It is, yeah. I mean yeah, that's like right. uh, yeah. it's like literally the oldest story yeah. on earth. Mm. It's biblical. It is biblical. Mm. Okay, let's say, let's say now you're the orphan girl. You're that oh, that, okay. that commoner girl. Your your name is Tammy, and you're 12 years old, <clears throat> and uh-huh. You're a commoner. Right. And you're, you just started your job at the palace as one of these palace girls, like working in the kitchen or whatever. And then one afternoon, you meet the crown prince. 
And guess what? He looks exactly like you. What do you? And doing? nobody's ever noticed this before. No, no. This is just something where it's like we all work with the prince day after day. And there suddenly are hundreds. Here's a woman. Of, there, there are hundreds of people at the palace, so like a lot of okay. people's faces go overlooked. But yeah, like okay. you, you see the crown prince. Like, he looks exactly like you. What do you do? Uh, I'm gonna guess. First, I do a zoom in with the camera with a big musical sting, uh, <laughs> and then a cut back to me looking surprised, but like trying to hide it. That's my guess. Um. Uh-huh. Honestly, me being me, I'd probably keep my mouth shut about it. Uh, oh. <laughs> but I, I guess, like, I guess, like, I would start asking around and, like, just telling people, like, in my life, like, what the fuck? I look exactly like the prince. What's going yeah. on here? Yeah. Uh, I'd be a little worried about. Because <laughs> the other thing is, like, there is a thing with royalty called bastard children. And I'd be worried a little bit about making waves with the king because, like, you don't want to embarrass royalty. Uh, you don't want to embarrass mm-hmm. someone who's the literal power of life or death over you and everyone you yep. love. But, yeah, I'd yep. probably start looking into it is, my, is what I would do. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Let's say you're Tommy again. You're the same chick. I'd be like, the Mom, crown? what the fuck? <laughs> I would. I'd be like, did you, did you know the king? Like, what's going on? Yeah, if you are indeed my mom. Yeah. If that is indeed your identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You start questioning everything. Okay. Let's say you're Tommy again. You're still <clears> the same girl. The crown prince says he needs to leave the palace to go see his teacher who is about to get beheaded because he was arrested for treason. And mm-hmm. he's not allowed to leave the palace. So he asks you to switch outfits with him. So he's asking <laughs> you to put on his robe and sit in his chair while he wears your dress and leaves the palace to go and meet go and see his teacher for the last time Mm -hmm. you do this you you do this uh this thing but the the prince who's dressed like you like the chick he gets shot with an arrow and is killed by a man hired by your maternal grandfather the very man who said that no twins should be allowed to be born and that the girl needs to be killed um yeah what do you do that's very interesting uh did they kill him because he's a twin like they found out he's no they thought they thought he was the girl they thought he was the ah so they knew the girl was still alive yeah somebody caught her face caught wind of it and they were like "Uh uh-oh Oh man! Yeah, yeah. I guess I'd fucking have to live as the king, right? I mean, like the your options are to flee or to make the best of it. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Okay. I'd rather live as a king than a refugee. I'll tell you that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So you're you're Tommy, you are uh-huh. the crown prince. Okay, you're the crown prince. Like you're you're the queen. Bef- right before she passed away, your mother said to you, like you need to pretend to be the prince. Like that's your fucking identity now. Hide the fact so the, that you're a woman forever. So the queen knew. The queen found out eventually. The okay. queen found out. Yeah. yeah well, she yeah. walked in on in the in the ladies' room or something. <laughs> she just noticed that her son was no longer like he was different. There was something off about him. 
I am, a mom would know. Yeah. Yeah, a mother would know. Um, and the queen said, right before she passed away of illness, she said, "You gotta, you know, stay alive and hide your identity and pretend like you're the crown prince." Okay, so you're an adult now. Like time has passed. You're an adult now. You're still crown prince, but your father dies. The king dies, so you are now officially the king, mm-hmm. and you're married to the queen. Like they found a nice, wholesome woman and married her to you, so she's your wife. And there's this thing called a hapang, which is where like the king lives in his his side of the palace and the queen lives in her side of the palace. But they do this thing called a hapang, which is where the king and queen meet up at another palace together to spend the night together in order to produce an heir to basically fuck to get down. Okay, and and so they have a conjugal trailer. Basically, <laughs> yeah. But it's a fucking palace. Like right. it's a nice fucking thing. So you gotta go and be with your queen wife mm-hmm. and provide this service. Mm-hmm. You got this pressure. What do you do? Uh, well, you can't kill her. Um, right. I guess I guess you uh, pretend to be impotent. That's a very interesting question. Yeah. Uh, you service her orally, I guess. Oh my God! So you as do all, have sex with her, but as all not as her. all us men do, we service our queens orally. <laughs> um, Gross. Yeah. Really, I, I feel bad for you yeah. then. <laughs> <laughs> you might be dating the wrong fellas. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Boy, I mean, you know, I, I honestly, that's a tricky one, right? Because like, I know, yeah, yeah. But that's what pretend- she's confronted with, yeah. If I were her, I'd pretend to be sick. Oh, uh, every night, be like, "Sorry, babe, I'm, I'm not feeling so well today." <laughs> Sorry, I got to go out of the country to wage a thirteen-year war. Yeah, yeah. So what does she do? Oh, she says. Uh, she's so cold she's like she bring she tells the server servants to bring in another set of blankets and uh-huh. she's like i'm gonna sleep here and you're gonna sleep there wow and we are not gonna touch each other wow and that's just how it's gonna be and you're gonna keep your mouth shut about it it's like really really cold that's yeah, fucking yeah, gangster yeah. yeah yeah this bitch is baller ass like she is fucking balls to the wall gangster okay okay Next question. Let's say you are this uh, son of a noble man named Chi Un. Okay, you're okay. like an aristocrat. You're kind of up there in the ranks, but you're not part of royalty. Your father works for the king's maternal grandfather, the one that's all like power hungry and crazy and wants to kill people and shit. And you're the crown. You're the king's tutor, so you go and like read books with them, and you like teach him stuff, philosophize. But you're basically his professor. Okay. And I'm going to guess I'm you. falling in love with, with the king. And it's very <laughs> yeah. confusing. Very, yeah, very confusing. Yeah, you're, you're like attracted to the king. Right. And you're like, right. I'm, but I'm a man and he's a man. Like, what's with right. this? Like, what do you do with all your feelings? And this is uh, a time before that was maybe legal. <laughs> um, I, guess, uh, I, I guess I live into my old age with those feelings. Uh Wow. And yearn quietly for the king. Really? And then 
And then one day I just let my passions loose. And it turns out the king feels the same way about me. And then luckily, the king is a woman, so it's not against <laughs> it's not against God's plan. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now what it's if all kosher? <laughs> here's the thing about them being identical twins like that. Yeah. Is uh, what if the story had gone differently and the <laughs> fucking tutor's in love with the actual king? The real and one. The, and the confesses his. One. Yeah, and confesses his love to him one day. That would have been a better show. I, that, I that would totally, be more. Yeah. That would be a very interesting story to me. Yeah, yeah. But you know what's actually this show? The reason why I love this show is because, like, Tami, this woman playing the king, right? Like, uh -huh. her queen situation, like, that queen is, like, in love with the king. Even after the king says, like, I'm actually, like, she, like, takes off her top at one point and goes, this is the reason why I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't sleep with you every night. Like, there's, like, a scene like that and, like, shows her, like, her cleavage. Uh -huh. And the queen is, like, you know. But the queen still loves the the lady king. Like, right. there's this very intense, like, lesbian attraction coming from the queen. And even with the Chiun guy, even though he's like in love with the king and is like confused, like he has like there's like no holds barred. He like fully smooches the king, like believing wow. he's a man. Like this is like a very like trans queer kind of show. I loved the whole like flexibility and the gender swapping and the it, it was like queer in all directions and that's why right. i love this show because it was like innovative in that way so yeah it was an intense ride okay yeah 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 and i guess yeah there are some predictable factors here you know and they're kind of time old gimmicks too you see them in like cinema a lot right well all, all i mean films. you know the, they wrote in the bible which is uh there's nothing new under the sun mm. And that was in the Bible, which was written 6,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Or 2,000 years, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who cares? 1,000 years, whatever, man. Yeah, yeah. Although Ecclesiastes, I think... Ago. Well, no, Ecclesiastes dates, dates back to like five or 6,000 years ago. Is that your but, favorite uh, book in the Bible? It's a beautiful book. Very poetic, yeah. It is. Um... I took when I was in college. I took a literature of the Bible class, oh. and uh, you know, just studying the Bible. Is, and I grew up in basically a Japanese Buddhist uh, cult, uh, so I'd never read the Bible before. Then it was like very. You're Irish. You're, well, you, Irish. You didn't grow up reading Irish Catholic kind of texts or none of that. No, my mom's Irish Jewish. Ah. And so they met in the seventies. Uh, in okay. this hippies. Buddhist, All right. yeah, they weren't hippies. Yeah. They just it was the seventies. People joined cults a lot. Yeah. Uh. But yeah, it was um. You know, uh, so it was my first time ever being exposed to the Bible, really, in a serious way, other than through pop culture. Yeah. And so I was surprised. Book of Solomon's dirty. Like it's just a dirty poem. It's a long mm. sex poem. Yeah. Yeah. Solomon was a sex fiend. Yeah. He was. Yeah. He liked to dip his wick. <laughs> <It's> gross. 
was disgusting. He liked to dip his wig, and he liked to like propose insane yeah. things, like let's cut up this baby, and maybe yeah. you could have a, one half and the other half. Yeah, yeah. He was a wild guy. Solomon liked to get his dick wet. And that's what made him so wise. It yeah. did. Yeah, every time he, he, he dipped his wick, he was getting yeah. more wisdom. Yeah, it was actually well, the power of the lady's pussy juice that was giving him the wisdom. Every I mean, time he did it. Yeah. Think about it. You look at the Bible. There's one character who's renowned yeah. for his wisdom. Uh-huh. And it's the same guy who just openly liked to get laid. <laughs> and like wasn't ashamed of it. Just like talked about it like most people do. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But yeah, especially that generation of, of Irish Americans are very, it's a very tough, very like, uh, very tough guy mentality. And it, it's hard for me to relate to. You know, I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah. I quit drinking in, when I was living in Queens and I, I went to a lot of like meetings uh, of, of a, a program of sobriety that I belong to. With mm-hmm. a lot of older Irish men in, in uh, mm. but I mean, I'm talking about like 60s and 70s, like, you know, like yeah. elderly. Yeah. yeah. And I remember once uh, I had to talk to a group about my story, my journey. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as you do. And I just shared about like how I was feeling at the time. Like I was in a very like weird, like emotional space and i was talking about it and just kind of like listen to these uh old irish guys like kind of grappling with opening up emotionally in this in this meeting which is something they didn't normally do and this lady came up to me afterwards she's like you know a lot of these old guys like to pretend they don't have emotions but they do (laughs) (laughs) and i was like yeah we just all had an hour together like of talking yeah, we got to let people feel. We got to let men feel. Even if they're 80, 70 fucking years old, if they are able to feel a little bit, like, I think I think that's important. That's like we're letting humanity reintegrate back into their subconscious. Yeah. Well, there's also a lot of, like, it's interesting about that generation is there's a lot of just trauma response involved, too, because, you know, like people now, baby boomers who are 70s or 80s, you know, they were raised by a generation that had just come back from war. Yeah. And it was it was a generation of untreated veterans with serious mm-hmm. issues who felt uncomfortable discussing it with anyone other than other veterans. So yeah. it's like yeah. they would go to the VFW hall once a week, get drunk and like talk about their experiences, yeah. but then have to fucking go back to their families and li- yeah. like try to live a normal life and have a job and a career and all that. Yeah. And those Irish guys, I mean, you know, I think it's easy to forget that the troubles didn't end until the 90s, right? Mm. Mm. And there was a lot, I mean, a lot of stories I would hear in those rooms about like, just, my, I was in Belfast with my brother and yeah. we left a pub and a sniper shot him dead. You know, like shit like that. And it's just like, you know, growing up either first generation coming from that from that environment where it's just a, you're under a lot of pressure all the time. Like you never know, might be in a Dublin marketplace and a bomb might go off. Like you just mm-hmm. never fucking know. Right. Or, uh, you know, growing up with, with family that, that went through that, you know. Yeah. yeah. Like the McEnany's when they came over from Ireland – 
they, they, the stories I heard about the, the generation that lived in, in Boston, kind of off the yeah. boat, yeah. like they all just basically lived in a house together till they all died. Um, oh. Like, you know, like very like weird and not what we consider in America healthy uh, family behavior. Um, a lot of dysfunction. A lot of dysfunction. And the same with the Jewish family. Because they all came, like, basically they fled uh, the Cossacks. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then I found out recently, my sister did a whole genealogy deep dive, and there's, like, a chunk of our family that were Choctaw, and they had to walk the Trail of Tears because uh, wow. this British family, like, married into them, and it was a whole fucking story. Um, so you, you're like a web of intergenerational trauma. Like... And basically, nobody wanted us. Like, we're just fucking... <laughs> <laughs> like constantly fleeing in terror. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's like whatever. But I mean, we all come from we all come from that fucking background one way or another. We do. We do. Uh, yeah. 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 You know, like nobody. So anyway, there's mm. there's a lot of that to a lot of like suppressing emotion because it's just like fucking not growing up in an environment that's healthy. That even allowed for that. That even allowed for it. Right. That would even hear it out, right? Like, you know, when you're looking at a mother who's like, you know, working class and trying to make ends meet with a shitty father who's toxic and drunk all the time, Mm -hmm. try going to that mother and complaining about a school bully. Try. Just try. Just go ahead. Go ahead and try. See if she'll hear you out, you know? But when I was a kid, we thought Vietnam vets and their PTSD was funny. Because, like, we just knew a ton of them. They're just, like, they were members of the community, and it's, like, you'd hear about a guy who fucking... Right. We'd, we heard, there was a guy who married an, an Asian lady, and then oh, he would just God. wake up in the middle of the night with night terrors and start hitting her, and it's just, oh, like... fucking God. You know, it's, yeah. like, what else can you do but laugh? Because if yeah. you don't laugh, yeah. you're going to go crazy. Yeah, yeah, because it's so weird. It's so bizarre yeah. that it's, like... The nervous response laughter, the I don't know what the fuck laugh laughter, right? And you know, this is another big part of my my dissertation research, which is like I kind of equate laughing with crying. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the same kind of the same orifices of your face sort of open up, and the same mm-hmm. kind of you know um, brain chemistry is lit up when you're laughing and or crying, which is that their attention release. It's a release response of tension. And um, yeah, it's like, in a sense, that all that laughing you guys did was technically crying. Yeah. <laughs> technically sobbing. Yeah. Right. Especially when you're a kid, you don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah. But this is a country that loves to send people off to war and then fucking give them the Heisman as soon as they come back. And then not deal with it. And then not yeah. deal with it. You know, like we, in like looking at the future... We got to deal with the Middle East and mm-hmm. all, all that shit that's going to come out of that. Like not only our veterans, but also people who are Middle Eastern American mm-hmm. and then the people who are in the Middle East currently and what they're dealing with, the aftermath of all of this, right? Like all of that. That's like the next thing that we're going to be dealing. I mean, we're currently still, we're dealing with it as we speak, but yeah. Yeah. That's something I mean, we're wh- all going to come to terms with. We got to come to terms with that. Grace, this is the best first date I've been on in a long time, so <laughs> this is fun. don't be sorry. 
Thanks for your time, Liam. This is great. Next time I'll take you to a podcast I like. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, this is great. Thank you. <laughs>